I wonder whether this is the right choice of image now that, because we we're talking about um, fauna and flora, and there's nothing of fauna or flora in in this image. So maybe it's the wrong decision. But anyway, that's the image that came to my mind, uh, and I think it, it fits with the with the reading and with what I'm hoping. Um, I can bring out of it. It's uh, a famous painting. It's called The Monk by the Sea. And that little image there is, uh, the, is a, ma a man dressed as a capuchin monk. Um, it's by Caspar uh, David Friedrich, the, the great uh, painter of the early 19th century German romantic, uh, romantic movement. Um, and he painted lots and lots of landscapes. Uh, but this, I've always thought, is most evocative because there's this enormous expanse of sea, there's this enormous expanse of sky, and this small, meagre little figure standing before the vastness of nature. And, uh, and of course, as a monk, it reminds us it's somebody standing in the presence of God. So uh, let's see whether, whether it fits with the, the reading for today and, and what we might want to bring out of it. Um, these are two wonderful stories that we know really well. We know them well because they are prelude to the third story, which is the most famous uh, story perhaps in the New Testament and the story of, that we often call the prodigal son. There, there's th three stories in a row. The reason we've only got the two stories uh, from the lectionary today is because uh, back in Lent, as I'm sure you can well remember, <laughs> I don't know if I can, but anyway, back early in the year, we had the story of the prodigal son, so I, I guess the lectionary uh, collators uh, who put this together uh, across the world decided that we would just have these stories, but of course it allows us to focus on them because the big story of the prodigal son, if we have them all together, they kind of leave these, it leaves these stories in the shade. But there's some wonderful things to be drawn out of these stories, aren't there? The, the fact that it is God who takes the initiative to search out the lost. It's not us coming to God, as we often talk about in Christianity. We should come to God or we should um, uh, look for God or we should look for Jesus. According to this text, it's none of that at all. It's God looking for us. And, and God doesn't count the cost. Because the stories are both crazy. You, you don't leave 99 sheep in a risky environment. Obviously risky because you've already lost one. You don't leave the 99 and search out for one. That's just economically insane. A 1% loss in any economic venture, this would be pretty good, really, wouldn't it? Given all the vagaries of trying to make a living. But God doesn't count the cost. It's whatever is needed to be done to find the lost is what God does. Even if it means death. Which is the culmination of the story of Jesus that we tell in the church for 2,000 years. And it's God that does the restoring too, according to this. It's, it's God who goes out looking it's God that finds and it's God that brings back. The sheep and the coin don't really do very much at all. It's not really about them. It's about what the finder does. It's not us 
being on our best behaviour. It's not us being moral or pure or pious or faithful. All of those things may be of value to us. And of course they are. Living a good moral life has good value to us. But that's not what counts here. What counts is simply what God does, which is restores the sheep and the coin to their right place. And God celebrates restoration. It's the whole point of, the, of, of life is to be restored to the fullness of what it means to be alive and to be human. But then these stories end strangely. They talk about repentance. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. And that's repeated, not word for word, but nearly, for the, for the story of the coin. It doesn't really fit, does it? If the story is all about what God does, what's repentance? What's it got to do with finding? Why does a coin or a sheep even need to repent? Or even can they repent? Like, it's, it's, you could read it as one way, of, like, this is just sort of tacked on the back. You know, like... The Sunday school teacher would tack a little sort of thing at the bottom of the story and you always know the answer is Jesus, even if you can't understand the question. You know, it's, it, it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Why will there be more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents? Well, first of all, we probably ought to unpack a little bit of this for a minute. A sinner is not someone in the New Testament who is a moral failure. That's something we've been taught that... Uh, Sinning is something that you do uh, and something that is wrong with you as a person. But in, the, in Jesus' time, the tax collectors and sinners are pinned together all the time in the New Testament, just as the Pharisees and the scribes are. Tax collectors and sinners were people who were on the outside. They were people who don't belong. They were a whole class of people. You didn't become a sinner by doing something sinful, you became a sinner pretty much by being born in the wrong crowd. That's just the way everyone was designated. Now, you could stop being a sinner if you promised to do all of the right things at the right time in the right way. But it was just a whole class of people. And, and Jesus, when he talked about sin, talked about it as more to do with blindness, which is why he's constantly restoring the sight of the blind. I don't know that there were any more blind people in the first century than there are today. But these are metaphors. They're stories about the blindness of what it means to be human. And that, that sinfulness, according to Jesus, is a blindness of, of, of the unwillingness to see the truth of things as they really are. Which is why Jesus goes on and on about it in Luke's Gospel, about opening your eyes and really seeing and he talks about the Pharisees being blind guides, not in Luke, but in Matthew. The Pharisees being blind guides because they're taking people away from the truth. So sinning is being blind to what's really going on. It's being a part of a whole group of people who don't see what's really happening in the world. And repentance 
It's not feeling sorry and then promising never to do whatever it is that you've done again. It's not apologising for it. Repentance has nothing to do with that. To repent simply means to turn around. The Greek word, as you've probably heard many times in, in the life of the church, the Greek word metanoia means to rethink things, to come at things with a different mindset, with having a different purpose, to see things in a new way or, if, if you like, to see the truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is always banging on about the truth. And he says, the spirit will come and lead you into all truth. Well, truth is simply things as they really are, not things as you would like them to be, or things as your parents told you that they're supposed to be, or things as they, you, they all really ought or should be, but things as they actually are in their wonderfulness and in their horribleness, in their smallness and in their vastness as the Friedrich painting shows us. It's seeing things as they really are. So to repent is to no longer be blind and to see truth as it is, which is brave. But it's not new sight. It's seeing things as they've always been, the actual truth of the universe. Because remember in Luke 4 when Jesus says why he'd come. He says they've come to give to recovery of sight to the blind. It's recovering, seeing things as they really are, the way that God made it to be. So to repent in the terms of Jesus is talking about here, to repent is to see the world as it truly is in all of its glory and all of its darkness too. It's hard to know whether there's a storm coming or whether we're looking at the sun going down, the end of the day at dusk, or maybe, possibly, we don't even know which coast it's on, maybe the sun coming up. We, and that's how the world often is. We don't know whether the thing that is happening now is going to lead us into something wonderful or into something terrible. We don't know whether the actions that we take even when we seek to be the best we can be, we don't know whether they're going to have meaning and value or whether they're going to make us fall to bits. We need to repent, Jesus says. We need to turn around. We need to see the world as it truly is. And there's going to be great joy when that happens. More joy than about the 99 who don't need to repent. Well, who are the 99 who don't need to repent? Well, nobody. There's no one. We know that. There's no one who doesn't need to open their eyes and see truth. There's no one that doesn't need to do that on a daily basis. When you wake up in the morning, I, this may not happen to you, but I wake up in the morning and some mornings I really wish the world was different i.e. it's raining and cold and I wish the world meant I didn't have to get out of bed. Or I wish that I didn't have to face the issues that I had to face that day. Or I wish I was feeling stronger or thinner or, more, or better looking. Or I, you know, that's how I begin the day, more often than not. Not always consciously, but in the back of my mind, there's a desire to see the world differently than I know it truly to be. But repentance is truth-knowing. 
It's acknowledging that we are the lost, which is a terrible thing to do because we're supposed to be strong, independent, autonomous human beings. That's what my mum and dad tried to instill in me, to be strong and independent and, and to know what I'm doing and to be decisive. And I can buy a hundred books in every bookshop about how to be a decisive person, how to be strong and how to be independent. But acknowledging that I'm lost is part of the truth of what it means to be human, isn't it? It's part of the truth of what it means to be a sheep or a coin, to acknowledge that this is the reality of my life. And at the same time, acknowledging that I've been found. And this is not a thing that happens once once only. I, I grew up in, a, in a, an evangelical church and in those churches it was very important for people to get up and tell their testimony. But there would often be stories of a, what, what people used to call um, toast testimonies. You pop up and everything's fine. I used to be terrible, now I'm good because what Jesus did for me. And they it's not to decry that, it's not doesn't mean it's not true. But what I realised as I was growing up is that this is a thing that happens to me every day. And as I began to study some of the great Catholic thinkers, Catholics often talk about being converted every day. Every day you need a new conversion to faith, to experience, to understanding. And so it's a kind of... People have said that when you ride a push bike... When you learn to ride a pushbike and, and you eventually figure out how to do it, you don't know how you figured it out, but you suddenly do. And your mum or your dad or somebody is no longer holding on to the back of the bike and you look back and you go, oh, I'm doing it. Well, what you're actually doing apparently is you're constantly unbalanced. But you don't, you don't experience it that way, but you're constantly slightly that way until you move slightly that way and you're constantly unbalanced. But because you've gotten used to it, you're not aware of it. I think that's a, a metaphor for, for life. The constant experience that I have of being lost is a, true, is a true experience. And the constant experience I have as a Christian of being found is a true experience. But they balance each other out all the time. And if I don't live in the truth, then I live in a moment I can live in total despair, as many of us do. In total loneliness, as many of us do. Or I can live in a sort of a fantasy world where everything is wonderful and God loves me and everything will be fine and if I need a parking spot, God will find me one and, you know, all of that sort of, that saccharine kind of nonsense that we do hear from other Christians from time to time. But it's both at the same time because we are a community of the lost and the found. Not the ones who were lost and now are found, although that is true, but the ones who are constantly live in lostness and in the reality of the world, but constantly live in foundness, in the extraordinary idea that you and I are loved by God. That if God has a fridge, there's a picture of you stuck on it with a magnet. Because God's quite impressed with who you are. Because that's what you do. I've got pictures all over my fridge that my grandchildren draw for me. I have no idea what any of them are, but they're from my grandchildren and they're fabulous because I just, I just love them. God's fridge is full of pictures of you and I and the silly things that we do. 
but I've to finish. Just last thing. Life is supposed to be a celebration according to these texts. Every time something happens, there's a celebration. Jesus celebrates all the time in the New Testament. He celebrates so many times that people think he's a drunk and a party goer. It's all about celebrating. Every time he talks about the way the world is supposed to be, the way the world truly is, the kingdom of God is Jesus' shorthand phrase for that. It's always about a party. We are, we are the community of celebration. I've often wondered what we'd be like if, if we just stopped doing all the stuff we do in church and just every time we get together, have a party. What if we became known as the people? These people, they're always having parties. And not only that, but they're inviting everybody to them. What if we did none of the other things? That we, we just had a party every time we got together. We'd, yeah, we'd probably be a little overweight. <laughs> and those of us who don't mind a glass of wine might have a headache the next morning. But so what? What if that is what we're called to? To a life of celebration. Of celebrating that even in our lostness, we are found. And even in our foundness, we can acknowledge our lostness. It's just the way of being human. And this is the way God has called us to be and the way God wants us to be. So we celebrate it. We do it every month. The Catholics do it every week and some places every day when we share in the Eucharist or communion. It's a little model of what we mean. And I don't mind a model you know, I wouldn't mind a model of a Ferrari. But you know what I'd really like? Yeah, I don't mind the model that we have. It's great. And we should do it, and we should do it with reverence, and we should do it with joy, and we should do it as often as we can. But that's just the model of who we are and how we should live. All right, I definitely have to stop now.